this evening, uh, this weekend, and next weekend I'll be preaching a couple of messages from the Psalms. And I, I love the Psalms. Uh, I love how they're honest about hard emotions uh, without being hopelessly resigned to them, right? And, and how they're expressive about good emotions without taking them for granted or idolizing them. They give us a beautiful example, I think, of how to be emotional beings um, in a relationship with a good God in the midst of a broken world. And we don't often follow the psalmist's lead, though, right? We, I think we go off the, the, their tracks in one of two directions. Uh, on the first side we go off on is kind of just stuff our emotions, just stuff them, stuff them down, right? Because uh, we're uncomfortable feeling what we think we shouldn't feel, uh, or we're just uncomfortable expressing it. The rawness, the, the darkness, the profundity of what's really in our hearts is so often ignored. And this is probably me more than I like to admit. Audrey's always teasing me about how I'm saying I'm not angry when I'm clearly angry. Uh, oh, I'm just not, not angry. Frustrated or something like that. Uh, but the opposite side we go off on is the other way that we go wrong is this wild exaltation of emotion above all else, right? The idea that your feelings are who you really are. And, I, I, you know, like, I can't help it. It's just the way I feel, right? But I, I think that identifying yourself that way, it's so, it's so arbitrary. It, why would that define you? It's just a part of who you are. It's a, I think it's a silly position to take, but it's wildly popular today. But this is why the Psalms are a breath of fresh air. They are unique. They show us a different way. They don't just rationally discuss or analyze feelings, and, and they're not also either just mere expressions of emotion or, or uh, proclamations of feelings. They don't uh, deny emotions, but they're also not being ruled by them. So what are they doing? They're praying through emotions and, and, and states of the heart, living out of the reality of where they really are in intimacy and openness with God, with the one who made our hearts. And there's some heavy stuff that the Psalms deal with. You, would, you might be shocked as you read through this ancient book of Hebrew poetry as to just the heavy things this thing tackles. I mean, the, the rawness, the realness, the, the anger, the fear. How they handle these emotions, though, is to pray through them, processing them in the presence of God, in, in whom alone there is hope and healing. Not to pay attention to our feelings, I think, is, is destructive, but also so is it to be overtaken by them, to, to elevate them too highly. And so I think the best approach is that of the Psalms. And so I want to look tonight at Psalm 103 with you. If you'll turn to, in your Bibles to Psalm 103, if you don't have your Bibles this day, maybe you'll bring them next time, and, uh, but you can just listen close. And uh, I'm going to read this whole Psalm, which it's not, it's not too short, so take a deep breath and be prepared to uh, take in this, this poetry from God. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 103 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, 
who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we were formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. I've said the Psalms have this beautifully unique approach to the emotional life of the human heart. Uh, but this is, I think it's especially true, I was kind of talking about negative, but I think it's especially true with positive emotions. They don't take them for granted uh, and they don't idolize them. I think um, they teach us how to process the good in life through prayer as well. Because when things are going good, we're so prone to just forget about God when things are okay. But not so with the Psalms. And they don't, they don't take positive emotions for granted, but they also don't idolize them like many people do. What I mean by idolizing, right, is that the main pursuit of modern people is, is to be happy in, in life, right? Just ask somebody on, on the street what you want out of life for themselves or for their children, and they'll say for them to be happy. That's what nine out of ten people will say. But if you make happiness an idol, you will lose it. It's a delicate creature that cannot bear your your weight. You'll crush it if you put your whole self on it. The Psalms teach us that you cannot be truly happy for happiness' sake. It's like grasping after a vapor. There must be, the Psalms teach us, an object of your joy. And that object must be able to satisfy first, and it must be pursued and remembered. 
The Psalms say that God, of course, is the only object able to truly complete your happiness and satisfy you, but we are sinfully prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to, to drift and to forget him and his benefits. In which case, we become joyless and anxious and arrogant and so on and so forth. And, and this is what this psalm is about, about not forgetting God. Which, of course, is a kind of double negative, meaning remember, right? Remember him uh, and his blessedness, his, his benefits, as this psalm says. David is preaching this psalm, as you can tell, to himself, to his own soul, he says. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's saying, remember his goodness and greatness, soul. But remembering and forgetting these concepts in the Bible are a little bit more uh, robust than the way we talk about these concepts in our everyday life. Um, remembering in the Bible means, it means being awake to the incredible realities of the gospel. These, there, there are passages in the Bible, there's these, this kind of group of passages that always hit me in, the, in like a splash of cold water in the face. I call them the wake-up passages. Uh, the Bible regularly calls us to wake up from ignorance and apathy and numbing ourselves to reality, to truth. As the book of Hebrews says, many Christians have become dull of hearing and are, and are just drifting, drifting away in their sleep without even recognizing it. And God is calling us to wake up. Revelation 3, 1 through 3 is one example. It says this, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Isaiah 51 says, wake yourself, wake yourself. He says it twice, just like that. Like, Stand up, O Jerusalem. It's like he's shaking them out of a spiritual slumber. And this is how, what he says leading up to that as he explains what leads to this slumber. He says, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? The son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. God says, if you are full of fear, you're forgetting me. And, and then he, this is our problem, right? Forgetting God. But fear isn't the only result. Uh, there's a, this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 where Peter's calling his, this church that he's writing to, he's calling them to grow in a whole list of virtues such as faith and godliness and love. And he says, if you lack these things, it's because you're so nearsighted you've become blind and you only see what's right in front of you. And he says, why? He says, because you've forgotten. You have forgotten that you've been cleansed from former sins. So if you're lacking faith, he says, if you're lacking godliness, if you're lacking love, you, you are failing to remember. Hmm. So he's saying that don't forget the gospel is essentially what he's saying. And you can see from these texts that forgetting is not the way we generally would think of it. It's, it's not just cognitive recollection that he's talking about. It's something deeper, something deeper than that. 
And we really get a sense, I think, of the depth of biblical remembering and forgetting when it's applied to God himself. Like in that Jeremiah 31, 34, that promise, uh, that beautiful promise of the new covenant, where it says this, they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Saying, I will forget your sin. This isn't how we usually talk about forgetting. God isn't like me pretty much any time I enter a room and I think, what What did I come in here for? You know, That's not the way God, God, he doesn't bump into you and think, what did you do wrong? I know you did something wrong. I don't remember what it is. That's not the way he's talking about forgetting. He's, he's, see, remembering in scripture is to hold something in your heart in a way that it shapes your life and how you think and how you feel and how you act. I think New Year's resolutions are a great example of this kind of uh, forgetting and remembering. Uh, we make resolutions, right? And, and we have good reasons for them. And at the beginning, the first few weeks of the year, those reasons were remembering them. And they're still having uh, control over us and how we act and how we live. But then as time goes on, we forget them. It's not that we can't recall them right? Mentally, but we forget them in the sense that the, the Psalms talk about, that they're no longer holding sway in our, in our mind and in our will. And this happens to us all the time, not just at the new year. There's something broken about, about us to where we're just so prone to forget. Even, even though the knowledge is not completely lost, when, when we still have that knowledge of it, but it's just what was so important to us at one point, it loses its grip on us. And it loses its presence, its, its weight in our lives. But this, present, this brokenness that leads to that is even more destructive and, and because it's not that we just can't remember the good things, it's that, we, it's, it's that we remember, we do remember the bad things, even things we desperately wish that we could forget. Our friends can tell us a hundred times that we're handsome or pretty and it might bear equal weight almost to that one time in middle school some kid said we look like a hippopotamus or something, right? It's, it's just, God tells you over and over again how valuable you are. But too often, it can't quite overpower the darkness of being told you're worthless by someone. There's a twistedness in our soul's memory, and God knows this. He warns us about it. God is always saying, you are going to forget me. I mean, that's why he instituted the Passover, right? Because he knew. He knew without it, they'd forget. And, and so it's, it's to help this people remember what he had done for them. And, and like that's what the Lord's Supper is, right, for us. But this forgetting, it's even darker than we think, because it's not just something that happens to us. It's something that we do. It's, it's, we're complicit. For example, in Deuteronomy 8, he warns us that when we become proud, when our hearts become proud, we will forget him. So pride leads to forgetting him. And Romans 1 tells us that the human heart so wants to be in charge of itself that it suppresses the truth. It suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. We don't want to remember. There's this... Uh, weird Jim Carrey movie called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And in it, Jim Carrey's girlfriend goes uh, to have this new procedure done where she can get her memories erased of him. 
just of him. And so Jim Carrey, he chooses to forget his girlfriend and have his memory wiped too because it's too painful to go on living with this, you know, with this memory. So he, he forgets because he wants to forget. He chooses to forget. But he realizes he doesn't probably want to forget as much as he thought he did. But by that point, it's too late. And they both have their memories wiped of each other. But when they encounter each other years later, after the procedure is done, there's a strange connection, something lingering deep within them. It seems more like a reunion than a meeting, which of course it is. He remembers that he's forgotten something. And humanity is in a similar state. We want to forget God so we can do our own thing. And we even succeed oftentimes. But something remains. He's put eternity into our hearts. And so we try harder and harder to forget and suppress. And we get better and better at it. Not recognizing that it's destroying us. So David recognizes this fallen inclination of himself and he, he addresses this psalm to his own soul and he says, to, he says all that is within me, right? He says, he's talking about all that is within him. He's, he's preaching to his inmost being because it's not just enough to subscribe to an idea. There needs to be this penetrating self-preaching not just studying or praying or even pondering. It's internalizing it. There's, a, there's a no, sorry to do so many movie scenes, but there's another scene in a movie uh, called Goodwill Hunting uh, that I think is a good picture of this, where Robin Williams, is, he's playing this the therapist named Sean, and he's finally won the trust of Matt Damon's character, who's named Will. And Sean, the therapist, he gets this file documenting the abuse that Will has endured throughout the, uh, his time in the foster system. And he tells Will, everything in this file, it's not your fault. And Will, he says dismissively, yeah, I know. And then Sean says, look at me, son. It's not your fault. And then Will says again, a bit confused, yeah, I know. And this goes on about five more times. Each time, Will gets more emotional until he bursts out in anger and pushes Sean and yells at him and says, don't mess with me, Sean. And then Sean continues to calmly say, it's not your fault until Will breaks down weeping and the two men embrace. And it's a moving scene. And it's a good picture of what this psalmist is getting at. Robin Williams' character, he said the same thing, right? More than once. But what was different about the last time that Will heard it? He heard it with his inmost being. He heard it the way this psalmist is trying to hear this truth. He even, I mean, right, because Sean had said it b before the first time, and Will even agreed with it, didn't he? He said, yeah, I know. He agreed with it. But it wasn't until that last time that he had taken it all the way down where it affected him. He understood its implications and it moved his heart. And if you say God loves me, but it's not, you're not affected by it. You're not moved by it. You are like Will after that first time he heard it, that it wasn't his fault. The psalmist is showing us how to practice in the presence of God what Sean did for Will in that scene. 
One of my favorite Bible teachers calls this praying our hearts hot because heat makes metal malleable and it refines it. But we are often cold. We've got to be warmed by God's truth and presence through prayerful devotion and meditation, preaching the gospel to ourselves. Many of us have practices like this or seasons of such, but many of us don't because we become too busy for such a thing, too distracted. We've come to believe some lies today, like all, all rest must be passive and mind-numbing, and anything productive must be frenetic and busy. And the Bible challenges us to not be absent-mindedly going from one extreme to another, from frenetic activity to entertained passivity. Here, again, the Psalms, they give us a third way. Biblical meditation, it's not just emptying your mind, but it's filling it. It's, it's why poetry is so great and so important because you have to think about things and, and think about them differently and think about them beautifully. It's why Christianity has produced millions of songs. And Christians have always sung about God's beauty and truth. This is what we're supposed to be doing when we sing, especially when we gather for worship. The Bible teaches us to think as we sing and think as we pray and think as we meditate and feel as we think and respond to what we feel. You see, David in this psalm, he's not just, he's not just thinking. He's thinking in the presence of God, with God. He's partnering with God as he examines his own heart and prods his heart. He's talking to himself, not just listening to himself. He's preaching to his own soul, and he's inviting God to preach to his soul. And he's giving a hearty amen as God preaches to his heart. But he's also listening to himself and what's really going on within him. In a sense, he's counseling his own soul with God, and a good counselor is a good listener. Like Robin Williams' character had to really get to know Matt Damon's character in that movie to, in order to, to say what he needed to hear in a way that he could hear it. You've, you've got to learn what's going on inside of you to speak meaningfully to it. But you must not stop there, of course, otherwise you're not a counselor, you're just a listener. So David calls his soul to remember. We've looked at what it means to remember, so now I want to look at the specifics of what he actually calls us to remember. He begins by saying, remember his benefits. Look at verse 3 through 6 with me as I say, kind of rephrase what he's saying. He's saying, if you're struggling with guilt, remember that he forgives all your iniquity. If you are sick or broken, remember he heals your diseases. If you are in a pit or afraid or downcast, remember he redeems your life. There is hope. If you are feeling dishonored or criticized, remember he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. If you are perpetually unsatisfied and longing, remember him who offers you satisfaction. If you are worn down or worn out, remember him who can renew you. If you are oppressed and are experiencing injustice, remember him who is on your side and works righteousness for you. Remember him. One of my favorite poets and hymn writers is named William Cooper. And he was a broken man who, who dealt with deep 
and dark depression. And you, you see him process it throughout his hymns and his psalms. In one hymn, he says this, Poor though I am, despised for God, yet God, my God, forgets me not. When you are forgotten, God does not forget you. You are significant, so significant to God. He will never forget you, never leave you nor forsake you. And, and if you remember this, if you're awake to it, it will remove your fears. It will grow you in virtue and faith and godliness and love. It will encourage you and free you. It will change you. What we remember, it shapes us. If we remember injustices toward us, it makes us bitter people. If we remember mercies toward us, it makes us joyous, grateful people. Remember his benefits. Remember him. David calls us to remember these subjective benefits, but he also calls us to remember his objective dominion. So he's so balanced where so many of us go wrong because sometimes we often just want to think about what God has done for us or will do for me and we end up cheapening it because we don't remember that, that we owe God everything as the, the ruler, rightful ruler of the universe. But at the end of this psalm, the last portion of this psalm, David calls us to remember his dominion. In verses 19 through 22, he's remembering that God is king of the universe. He, he says he's king of heaven and earth, of everything in, Psalm, in verse 19. He, he's king over mighty angels who obey his commandments, even over a great host of angelic beings who worship and serve him, and they are called to bless him, he says in verse 20 and 21. And then he says he's king over all creation and all places which are called to bless him in verse 22. And then he ends the psalm where he began. Bless the Lord, O my soul. See, he recognizes that he's king over my soul. And I am called to bless him. Uh, Tolstoy once wrote that there are two gods. There is the God that people generally believe in, a God who has to serve them, sometimes in very refined ways by, say, merely giving them peace of mind. This God does not exist. But the God whom people forget, the God whom we all have to serve, exists and is the prime cause of our existence and all that we perceive. You see, he's saying, we forget the real God. We forget the creator king who, who, to whom we owe our whole lives. And we do that in favor of an imaginary God who caters to our needs and our desires. But David calls us to remember the real God, the, the God of supreme majesty. And then... You will be joyfully humbled by his care for us because he does care for us. And because this, this, in this psalm, actually, this, this supreme majesty of God and, and his greatness and significance is juxtaposed with our smallness in a really beautiful way, which is the third thing I, he calls us to remember. He rem remember this staggering juxtaposition of your fleeting smallness and God's vast eternal love for you. That's what he said, he's getting at in verses 14 through 17, where he's placing together our seemingly utter insignificance, and yet God, in his infinite significance, declares us significant to him. Look, I'm going to read verse, starting in verse 14. For he knows our frame, or he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. You see, he's saying we're so ephemeral. We're, we're fleeting. We're tiny. And then comes verse 17. But, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Wow. It's like C.S. Lewis said in one of his most famous sermons, he says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. And what makes this more than just nice, what makes it glorious is knowing what it cost. And this leads to my last point. Remember the gospel. Look at verses 7 through 9. In verses 7 through 9, David is using language. Uh, he's using language to trigger our memory of Mount Sinai. If you know the scriptures well and you read verse 8, your mind immediately goes to the scene where God is on Mount Sinai speaking to Moses in Exodus 34. And, and David in this psalm says exactly what God says of himself in that passage in Exodus 34. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But as you read both texts, David begins the same way, but it diverges in a significant way because the original account in Exodus says God will by no means clear the guilty. And then Psalm 103 says he does not repay us according to our iniquities. There's a tension there that David intends for us to feel. How does God resolve this tension? You see, David, he knows God's character. He knows that he can't just overlook sin. He, that's injustice, right? He, he can't just overlook sin. He, he, God actually has to remove sin. And that's why he says he removes, notice he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Such a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? I mean, we may be used to it, but so we forget, but it's a beautiful metaphor, infinitely far away. No matter how far your sins try to run you down, they can't catch up with you. An infinite gap, a God-sized distance. But where are those sins put? Yes, they're put infinitely far away, but where? And then Isaiah shows us that it, this is the key insight. It's not just an infinite distance. It's an infinite person. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned to our own way, but God has put on him the iniquity of us all. See, our turning to our own way, our forgetting God, it earns us the fair consequence of him forgetting us. We forsake him, he forsakes us. But there is one who took that penalty instead of us. There is one who was forsaken for us. As Jesus hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this deeper sense of, that we've been talking about, of forgetting and remembering, Christ was forgotten by God for you so that you could be remembered. 
so that you would grip God's heart, be at the center of his heart and his affections as a child is for a father. That's what, that's what this psalm says, doesn't it? He says he has compassion on you as a father does for a child. But in Christ, we see that it's not just any, like the, a generic sense of a father for a child, but the love of the father, the eternal father for the, his one and only son. We share in that beloved remembrance. Because Christ took our forgottenness and forsakenness, which was brought about by our forgetting and forsaking God. Remember that in Christ you have been remembered. Remember the gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so prone to forget you and your benefits. Wake us up, Lord. Make us alive to your glory and your goodness. Fill our hearts with joy in you that flows out as praise. Grant us repentance and remembrance in light of the gospel, that Christ was forsaken, that we may be welcomed as sons and daughters into your kingdom. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your benefits, for your many blessings. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.